Welcome to Masterclass, a collaboration between the virtual world diplomacy community and Brotherboard's Diplomacy Dojo. The host for this week's Masterclass is Dave Ainsworth, who, in addition to being a diplomacy player, is also a data journalist. All right, uh, we're about to get started. Our speaker today is uh, Dave Ainsworth. He comes from uh, the United Kingdom. He lives outside London. He has been playing diplomacy for about a year. He is a data analyst and has put together some interesting data about correlations between countries, some interesting findings that he is willing to share with us. Without further ado, let me welcome Dave Ainsworth, and uh, thank you for putting together this data and sharing it with us. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for, for having me. So I'm a little bit of a part-time data analyst. I'm, I'm a journalist mostly, but I do quite a lot of data analyst in my day job. But I'm also an extremely keen diplomacy player. And about halfway through my first game of diplomacy, about a year ago, I was losing badly. And I came across some, some data from a guy called Josh Burton. Uh, which was put together quite a while ago. Uh, and if, you, if you've not looked at Josh Burton's original articles, he wrote a number of articles about some data that he'd found on various different aspects of the game of diplomacy, one of which was how people went about getting a solo. And I'm, I'm very, very curious about uh, all different types of, uh, of data, and I started to noodle around with it a bit more. And I put together a chart, which you should be able to see in the Masterclass chat channel, which basically looks at the change in your chances of soloing with any country, depending on who else is left on the board. Anyway, so basically this chart is about who you, you, the changes in your chances of soloing, depending on which countries survive and don't survive. Looking at Austria, you can see basically that... Uh, Austria's chances of soloing generally in any game of diplomacy are about six in a hundred. In a hundred diplomacy games, Austria will solo six of them. But if Turkey survives, and that's the yellow bar there, if Turkey survives, you can see that those chances drop by about 80% to about one in a hundred. On the other hand, if England survives, the chances go up by about 60% to about 10 in a hundred. So which countries survive and which ones don't survive has a really huge impact on uh, your chances of solving in a game of diplomacy. And obviously that then creates a question for you, how do you go about making that happen? I'm mostly just going to talk today about basically what the data suggests you should be looking to have happen, not so much about kind of how you go about making that. There's actually a, a, a wonderful article by Brother Board talking about how you actually go about causing that disruption to, to make these things happen, which I, I would also thoroughly recommend. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think this data shows us. So the, the, some of them, I think, sort of can support the conventional wisdom of how to play diplomacy, and some of them arguably don't. So the one thing to, to look at is the, uh, the antagonistic relationships on the board. So I think if we, we look at this chart, you can see clearly that the most antagonistic relationship on the board, and this won't necessarily surprise people who've been playing diplomacy a while, is between Austria and Turkey. Basically, the chances of Austria soloing if Turkey survives are about 1 in 100. Chances of Turkey soloing if Austria survives are about 1 in 100. 
this is the most antagonistic relationship on the board. It's just extremely hard for, for Turkey and Austria to, to get along. It's not impossible. A friend of mine sent me a, a, a map the other day in which he played, he'd soloed, he'd played an, an Austria-Turkey alliance all the way through the whole game. And then he was Austria, I think, and had stabbed Turkey right to the death to take the solo. So it is possible to do. So Dave, where is this data from? What what games did you collect it from? And right. So this data was collected. This this data was collected by a, a guy from Princeton called Josh Burton, and it covers about five or six thousand games of diplomacy, mostly from the play by email list. So maybe slightly different to data from the the kind of websites like Backstabber or um, Web Diplomacy. And actually, there was some interesting data that was produced uh, by a guy called Joshua McGowan based on web diplomacy, which shows that um, on web diplomacy, solos are far more frequent than they are in other places. The two-thirds of games that were taking place on web diplomacy were ending in solos in his data, whereas if we look at data from other places, we see that it's more like 45 to 50% is the normal number of games that end in solos. So I'm, I'm reinterpreting Josh Burton's data. So it's, it's sort of, and he looked at a mixture of um, gunboat and full press games, but I'm just talking about full press here. So after that, England and France, probably the second most antagonistic pairing. Um, third is Italy and Turkey. Fourth is England and Germany. So we can talk, we can't talk about every single relationship on the board between every single two countries, but but unsurprisingly, if you look at this this chart, you can see that usually you want the countries that are near you to do badly, probably because you killed them, and you want the countries that are far from you to do well. But I think one thing that's interesting in this chart shows us is that you tend to want a lot of other countries to survive during a solo. You tend to, to want your neighbors to die, but then you usually want every other country on the board, if possible, to survive. Your chances of soloing are increased if every other country on the board survives. So I think that's pretty interesting. Another thing that this brings home to me that I think is really interesting is how much the stalemate line matters. So there are lots and lots of different stalemate lines that you can construct on the board to, to prevent somebody getting from 17 to, to 18 centers. But this is the kind of classical main stalemate line, the, the one that everybody learns about first. And if you look at it, it's kind of a mirror. And I think the stalemate line is one of the most powerful geographical features on the, the board, even though it's invisible. And I um, learned about the game. It took me a long time to actually figure out that it was there in the first place. It really defines the relationship between the, the powers. If you if you look at the, the seven powers on the board, you can see that the stalemate line, it's kind of a warped mirror, basically. People conceptualize the, the board as having three central powers, Italy, Austria, and Germany and then four corner powers, which all have their own corner. And the, the idea is that you, the central powers do badly because basically they're surrounded on all sides, whereas the corner powers do well because they're protected by the corner of the board, and that, that uh, makes it more difficult to attack them. But I think this conceptualization of Italy as a, as a central power in particular is kind of a bit misleading, because if you, if you look at the, the map, really the halfway line from corner to corner of the board is not actually corner to corner it's this blue line here and if you look at look at it that way you can see that you've kind of got a mirror situation and france and italy occupy almost 
identical places on opposite sides of the stalemate line. And if we look at the, the countries that they want to survive and that they want to see die, then France and, and Italy are almost exact mirror opposites reflected across the stalemate line. Stalemate line is a slightly warped mirror because you'll look at it and you'll see that there's more Russia in the south than there is in the north. And that means that there are less neutrals in the south and more in the north. And that effectively creates a situation where the south southern half of the board is just a tougher environment to survive in. Uh, when we look at the data from solos, we see that typically countries only take two to three centers on the opposite side of this stalemate line when they're soloing. Countries, England and Turkey, typically conquer 16 centers on their own side and only two on the other side. The, the Russia, which starts out on both sides, typically takes seven in the, in the north and 11 in the south, or some similar ratio to that. And then all the other powers are heavily concentrated on one side of this line. So Italy, I think, is a Mediterranean power, basically looking at this data where you, you have to, where Italy typically gets a solo. Basically, every Italy province that Italy takes in a typical solo is within one or two moves of warm blue water. Basically, Italy conquers typically when it solos the 18 centers that are adjacent to the Mediterranean or are closest to the Mediterranean. Of those, typically 14 are south of the stalemate line and only a couple are to the, to the north. So, so Italy usually takes only four centers from the north in a stalemate line, in a, in a solo, sorry. Italy's still the country after Russia that's most likely to cross the line and force, but it's still pretty implausible. Anyway, so we can see basically that um, the stalemate line affects who you need to kill to win. And if we, if we look at this kind of comparison, we can say that we've got two central powers, Austria and Germany, two corner powers, England and Turkey, two kind of powers that share a corner, France and Italy, and Russia, which is off by itself, doesn't have a mirror power because it's on both sides of the line. It's, it's mirroring itself. If, if you look at the, the countries that England wants to take out, um, it really wants to take out Germany and France. No great surprises there, but it really wants Austria to do well. Then if you, you look at um, Turkey, you see very similarly, it really wants to take out Austria, it really wants to take out Italy, and it's, it's really interested in the powers on the other side of the line doing very, very, very similar. If you look at Russia, you can see that Russia is actually pretty much fine with everybody surviving. Russia's okay. Russia can solo with any other country surviving. Kind of wants to kill Austria, it wouldn't mind killing Turkey, but it's not absolutely vital. But what Russia really, really wants is for both France and Italy to do extremely well. So this brings us on, I think, to the, the most interesting thing from, for, for me about this, which is that it's really, really, really important to have other powers who are on the far side of the board, very far away from you. It's really important to have them survive. We can see that Austria... Basically, England normally survives in a game. England survives in about two-thirds of all games. So if we look at that data and compare it with, with what's happening with Austria, we can see that actually England surviving is a bigger factor potentially in an Austrian solo than Turkey dying, which was quite surprising. So I'm, I'm a little bit cautious about that data. I can't be 100% about that. 
But it looks the same with Germany and Turkey. And it's interesting, Germany, of all the powers on the board, Germany wants Turkey to survive the most, which is kind of not the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom says that if you're Germany, you should form an Anschluss with Austria and um, a very close alliance, and you should have each other's back, and that Germany really needs to protect Austria against all comers. Whereas this data seems to show that actually, of the southern powers, Austria is the one that Germany cares about least. It would much rather have, it's much more likely to solo at least. We can't talk about how this affects Austrian draws. We don't have that data, so that might be different. But in a solo, Germany would actually prefer Italy and Turkey to survive. So that to me really is the, the most interesting uh, thing is how much you really want to focus not on just killing the powers that are near you, but ensuring the survival of the right powers on the other side of the board from you, and as many powers as possible on the other side of the board. So a couple of final points. First one is that you can use this chart to give every country a, a friendliness rating, how much everybody else profits from their survival and their death. And probably uh, it may not surprise you to learn that the, the country with the lowest friendliest rating is Austria. Everybody wants Austria to die. Um, on the other hand, the country with the, the highest uh, friendliness rating is Italy. Um, nobody really seems uh, that fussed, to be perfectly honest, about Italy dying. Almost nobody wants Italy to die. Um, and I think that potentially kind of makes me think every country has its own unique play style, but I think Italy is particularly fascinating to me, and I think this says a little bit about kind of how you might want to go about playing Italy. The other thing to say is that um, when I first published this data, people came out of the woodwork and said, yeah, it's all very well kind of having statistical data on who you shouldn't work with, and I, but really the game is called diplomacy. If you can find a another country that you can work with, if you can find somebody the ally with that you can work well with, then never mind what the data tells you. Like, just work with the people that you can actually work with. Really, it's about negotiation, and this is a useful guide, but it's superseded by the individual relationships with the, the individual players on the, the map. Now, one, one last thing to say, maybe, is, is that I'm, I'm a little bit cautious about kind of confounding effects here. This data shows that um, it's very important that France and Italy do well when, when Russia solos. But of course, the, the, the cause could be the other way around. If you've got Russia killing everybody all over on the eastern half of the board, they're not going to dedicate much resource to the West. And that means that there are less people available to fight France and Italy. So it could be that this is the effect of the Russian solo that we're seeing rather than necessarily the cause. And I guess the final thing to say is I really wish I had better data. This data's all right. It's quite old. It's quite partial. I can't tinker with it a lot. It would be really useful to talk to some of the guys who are running the, um, the modern sites that people are playing on and actually get some up-to-date information and find out whether all of this stuff is still true. Anyway, there we go. That's me talking for 15 minutes solidly about the data of diplomacy. Uh, I hope you found that interesting. Do you have any questions? So I think you have a text question from uh, Adam Silverman. He's Agman. Oh, uh, yes. These data are super fascinating. I think there are many interpretations of it. 
Because of the fact it's Chancellor of Austria, it could be just a correlation of the fact that Austria dies more than any other power. I think the fact that we can see that there are different results. Like, actually, the, the data mostly shows that you really don't want very many countries to die when, uh, when you're trying to solo. And the, the fact that uh, people do better when Austria solos, I guess it's just because Austria is just right in the way of so many countries who are, they absolutely need those centers to get to 18. Like Turkey absolutely has to get those centers to get to 18. Um, Russia pretty much wants them. Italy pretty much wants them. So, I mean, I guess it's it's a representation of what we all already know, which is that Austria dies in uh, six in every ten games. And it shows that um, basically the reason that Austria solo six and dies so often in so many games is because everybody has to everybody wants to kill Austria and get their stuff, essentially. Okay, so Germany and Russia are the two countries who benefit when three powers die, likely because they're the most surrounded. I'm surprised it doesn't apply to Austria as well. I'm actually quite surprised by that. Let me go back and have another look at that, because that does seem quite surprising, doesn't it? That actually, it looks like England is in that category as well, of, of preferring three powers to die, but only incredibly marginally preferring uh, Russia to die than Russia to survive. I think Russia's role in this game is really interesting, actually. Basically, kind of, if you look at um, what being a central power means, it basically means likely to get walloped by Russia. Germany and, and Austria actually less, Germany is less likely to get attacked by purely subpowers, by Italy and Austria and Turkey, than France is. But it's a lot more likely to get killed by Russia. So I think the reason that the central powers kind of really prefer um, lots of countries to die is, is exactly that, the fact that Germany has an antagonistic relationship with England and France and Russia. And the Austria one is interesting, actually. I think that's just the factor of the fact that Austria and Italy have this really weird asymmetric relationship where Austria kind of wants Italy to do quite well but Italy really wants to kill Austria and take its centers. I think Tim wrote a question. Oh, yeah. So it's, are we assuming it's therefore better to keep other countries alive rather than say the final two dots? So how, would I, how does this apply in-game? Okay, so basically, I think what you want, if you're trying to solo then it's really important to resolve your own side of the board before the other side of the board resolves. Like, so typically, quite often, when you're trying to solo, you get to 15, 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, and the people on the other side of the board will all unite and stop you. That's much more difficult to do if there's a lot of other powers on the other side of the board. I'm currently in a game where I'm trying to organize a multi-way coalition against France with Italy and um, uh, and Germany, and it's just a nightmare. We've been going back and forth with sandboxes and arguments, and goodness knows what, for ages. It's just really hard to, to, to coordinate, and these are very good players that I'm playing with doing this, and normally it's just impossible to corral people into a, into a coalition against someone if you've got three, four surviving powers and they all have to work together to stop someone getting to a solo. 
So I think it's really important to to kind of to keep powers on the far side of the border alive. And what this data shows is, in particular, it's really important for southern powers to keep England alive, and it's really important for northern powers to keep Turkey alive. Austria and Turkey basically almost never solo if Italy die, if sorry if England dies early on. Uh, and none of the northern powers are very particularly likely to solo if Turkey dies. I think you need basically a late-breaking Turkey, a kind of Turkey on four or five dots just sitting on the corner of the board, distracting a bunch of resource away from people, making it so that they can't rush to the stalemate line. It's just an incredibly valuable thing in a solo. France, the only country where nobody wants them to stay alive most. Let me have a look. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? No, <laughs> nobody really minds that much about France dying, apart from England, which absolutely has to kill France. But then nobody is that, like, France being alive is not that useful to anybody. I think that's not that surprising. The, the, the England and Germany and Turkey and Austria have a kind of straight line relationship. Like, England wants Austria to do well, and it wants Turkey to do well. Germany wants uh, Aust uh, Austria and Turkey to do well. But France and Italy have this really symbiotic relationship with Russia. And I guess, basically, therefore, only Russia really wants those two powers to do well. And Russia kind of prefers Italy to do well. I mean, it, it suggests to me that Italy and Russia are kind of the in some ways, the two most unique powers in in how diplomacy is played and kind of their relationships with the rest of the board. Just to comment, I think that's really interesting um, about Italy because I think it's sort of commonly understood that Russia and France have a, a connected relationship. Um, but I hadn't <clears throat> realized that the data about Italy was similar. Could you talk a little bit more about, I mean, I think it's kind of obvious what makes Russia unique, but could you talk a little bit more about um, why you think Italy is so unique, and I, I also thought the the idea of it being a mirror to France is very interesting. It is, yeah. It's kind of like I talk about it being a warped mirror. The real difference is is basically Italy is France if you took away Belgium and Spain, like because there's 17 centers on each side of the board, but Russia there's three Russian centers in the south. That means that there's only room for five neutrals in the south, but there's room for seven neutrals in the north. So that then basically means that Italy and Austria are operating in a comparatively resource-poor environment compared to the north. Turkey actually has a similar ability to grant centers to England in the north. And both of them were kind of um, both of them kind of have a predatory relationship with Russia, actually. If you look at English solos and, and Turkish solos, Sevastopol and St. Petersburg are actually more likely to appear in a Turkish solo and an English solo than they are in a Russian solo. So that's quite interesting. But anyway, that wasn't the question. The question was about kind of what makes Italy unique. So I, I think Italy's unique because it's got this kind of really resource-poor environment. can only pick up tunas, can't really compete for another neutral in, in 1901. And this same data, actually, there's a lot more data that I didn't pull out to, to, to talk about in this. I really recommend checking out Josh Burns' original articles. Um, shows that if Italy gets to five dots by the end of 1902, Italy's chances of winning the game are exactly the same as everybody else's. Basically, is that, and um, Chris Brown recently did a, a great uh, talk on um, 
how to play Italy. And what he basically said was get the fifth dot by hook or by crook. doesn't matter how, get the fifth dot. And if you get the fifth dot, then you're absolutely fine. You're in the game. But Italy's got this great advantage that um, nobody wants to kill Italy in 1901. France never attacks Italy in 1901. Austria never attacks it. Turkey can't even get there. So you know that you've got uh, a year in which nobody is going to come after you, almost guaranteed, unless you manage to spectacularly wind up Austria in some completely unrealistic way. Nobody is going to attack you in 1901. So that... Um, then creates a, a scenario where you as Italy have got time and space to operate. But what are you going to do with that time and space? How are you going to get anywhere? So, I mean, there's loads of kind of unique theories about how to play Italy. One of them is to kind of the Tyrolean staircase maneuver, where you take that army in Venice and you just start marching it north, Tyrolia, all the way along the stalemate line, Tyrolia, Bohemia, Prussia, Silesia, and just stop whenever you find a vacant center and occupy it. Um, I guess the way that I think about Italy is Italy's a mercenary power because nobody's going to attack Italy. Italy can go right round the board and say to all the other countries, every other country apart from France, I need a fifth dot. Are you going to give me the fifth dot? If you give me the fifth dot, then all of my units will come and attack whoever it is that you want me to attack. So you say it to, to, to Austria, give me a fifth dot. We'll go and fight Turkey together. You say it to Turkey. Give me Greece, I'll fight Austria for you. Say it to Russia. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll move to Tyrolia. I'll, I'll do the, uh, the, whatever it's called, the Obriani opening. You move into uh, Galicia and we'll attack Austria together. Or you can say it to England and Germany. I'll move against France. If, uh, if you move to the Channel and you move to Burgundy and you actually try to get in, then I can get the fifth dot in Marseille. And, um, but yeah, what it, I think what the data shows as well is that at some point, as Italy, you're going to have to go west if you want to win. You're going to have to attack France at some stage. France can win without attacking Italy, although I think France most commonly does attack Italy to win and certainly picks up Tunis at the very least. But Italy in particular basically is most likely to break over the stalemate line and that's likely to be an early attack in France. The, the other thing this data shows is that that happens about a quarter of the time. Like one game in four, Italy attacks France. It, it doesn't seem to be the ideal way to start, but I've seen it work a number of times. Okay, does anybody else have anything? Uh, yeah, Dave Maletsky typed out a question, okay. and then Tim typed out a question. Yeah, lovely. Let's have a look at this. Uh, can you touch upon the relative cost and benefits of eliminating the neighbors in your heart versus neutering them and allowing them to continue on as genissaries. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm, I'm really qualified to, to talk about this. I've, I've had success with, with both of these, and I think probably for me, I'm a relatively new player at diplomacy, the biggest learning curve has been to not stab people when I could have done. Like a couple of games, I've looked at it and gone, oh, I've got a two, three dot stab there. I can stab those people. I could, I should take them out. And then found myself kind of anchored at 16, 17 on the, on the near side of the stalemate line because I hadn't got across. And I've read a lot of advice just recently that says, stay with your ally until you're over the stalemate line, which I think is probably extremely good advice. Um, 
I think the Janissary thing um, uh, really is, I think it's situational, isn't it? It must be to do with the player that you're playing with. If you think that you can realistically work with a small minor ally who's going to do everything that you say, and you can persuade that guy to go around and attack who you want to attack and do all the things that you want to do, then I think that it's got to be the right idea to keep them alive, hasn't it? There's, I, I guess that's a tempo question as much as anything else. You don't, you, you shouldn't be wasting tempo killing people that you don't need to kill at any point in the game. If you can go back and mop them up later, and in the meantime, their units are going to continue as if they were yours, then I would say, great. But I don't know, it's very much a judgment for me about how much do I trust this guy? How much do I trust that player to not be constantly undermining me, engineering my downfall, kind of getting ready to stab me in the back. Um, the the broadcaster Legendary Tactics posted a video recently of him doing that with, he was Russia and he reduced Turkey down to one dot and then he built him up a little bit to act as a genissary and then he let him into the Black Sea and Turkey stabbed him and, and then there's this marvellous video of Turkey just trampling all over Russia and taking all of his things. So I would I would behave in that way with extreme caution, I think. But it's entirely situational, isn't it? It depends on the, the player and how much you feel you can trust them. Um, okay, so we've got some more questions here. The most surprising piece of data is that both Italy and Russia don't really care about either of the witches of the East or West. I think it's common to believe south of the line we care about the North and Curious one. Okay, so I think... This thing, so the, the question is basically, why don't Italy and Russia care that much about England and Turkey, whereas all the other powers do? Um, so, yeah, I think Italy and Russia are the powers that can move and do move most easily across the stalemate line, which then therefore suggests that the... For, for the other powers, it's really important to have that power in the far corner dragging resources away from you, whereas Italy and Russia are far more likely to make a dash across the stalemate line early in the game, like 1903, and obviously Russia starts on both sides. And I think the data pretty much shows that if Russia doesn't break out south and north, then it stands no chance of a solo. Pretty much as... Almost no Russian solos don't involve St. Petersburg. And as we, as we know, once you've lost St. Petersburg as Russia, it's pretty much impossible to get it back again. It happens very, very rarely. So if you're Russia and you want to win the game, you have to really prioritize hanging on to St. Petersburg, even if that means not disbanding a northern fleet and, and uh, supporting it with a southern center for a couple of years just in order to give yourself the ability to get St. Petersburg back. Um, so I, I think that's why they are less interested in the witches, because they the witches are less likely to have a negative... They don't need them in the same way to hit their enemies and prevent them from uh, from causing kind of... Their, their inability to win late in the game. Okay. And the only piece of bad will across the stalemate line is from Germany to Russia. 
Yeah, I think it's misleading, basically, to think of Russia as a southern power. Russia typically ends 1901 with two centres in the north and four centres in the south. And it's very common as Russia to, to break out in the north, to have four or five centres in the north quite early in the game. So I think, basically, Germany and Austria similarly are really threatened by the, the kind of Russian bear. Because Russia is basically a land power. Russia, therefore, has a kind of predatory relationship with Germany and Austria. If Russia breaks out and it does quite well, then it can build in Warsaw and start marching armies uh, into the kind of Austrian and German heartland. Whereas Russia's only got one port in the north, one port in the south, can't build fleets easily. And that means it can't really threaten Turkey and, and England in the same way. And the way the kind of borders are set up, south and north, like Turkey can move to Armenia and, and get more units on Sevastopol than Russia can really easily put in place to defend it. So I guess one way of looking at it is to, to look at where powers end up in the game. Like, so Russia starts out with 20 uh 33% more resources in 1901 than anybody else and it finishes 1901 with typically six centers to anybody else's five so it's usually got 20% more resources at the end of 1901 than anybody else but it finishes the game pretty much par with all these other countries that that start on three centers so where have those centers gone where does that advantage disappear to who gets it and the answer, actually, if you look at the data, is England and Turkey. They, they are the ones who absorb all of that kind of extra Russian mass. 100% of the difference is kind of between where people end up in 1901 and when they finish up at the end of the game is England and Turkey taking resources off Russia. So I guess that's basically Russia is really good at attacking Germany and Austria, but England and Turkey are really good at attacking Russia. Okay. Well, thank you, Dave, for, for talking. Uh, I'm going to hang out for a few minutes and, and chat with people. Uh, but uh, I appreciate you putting this together and uh, presenting it to us. My pleasure. Um, My absolute pleasure. We, we uh, will be meeting again next week. I don't have a speaker lined up yet, so it may just be a bit of a roundtable. But uh, we will be here again next week. Okay, lovely. Well, thank you all so much for coming along and listening. I really enjoyed doing that. I'll hang around for a bit as well, have a chat if anybody's interested. Well, I, for one, thought that was incredible. You speak like someone who's played diplomacy for 25 years. I'm astounded. <laughs> thank you very much. I, did, I learned the game 25 years ago uh, at university, so I was taught by one of my friends. Um, and then I didn't play it for about 25 years. And then I came back to it last um, March, I guess. I started lockdown. A friend of mine sent me a link to a game. And, uh, yeah, I've been playing almost every day since, to be honest. But uh, really, really interesting. A lot of us have come back into it the same way. Did you um, – I have a similar story. Did you Have you played any of the virtual tournaments or anything, the virtual face-to-face -face stuff? No, I never have. Like, um, I was a bit shy, to be perfectly honest. Like, cause I, uh, I've never played a seven-player face-to-face game 
ever in my entire life. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tempted. I have quite a group of friends who play Diplomacy now. So one of the guys that I played with, we started kind of hoovering up really good online players whenever we came across somebody that we thought they know what they're doing. We kind of put them on a list and then formed a gaming group that way. And so I'm I'm currently in a game right now with with seven guys who are giving me a real kind of hard time. <laughs> the six other guys who are giving me a hard time. But uh, I'm I'm thinking about this virtual face to face thing. I think maybe I should I should get stuck into that. But it, I think it's a very different skill. It's different. I think people just have to adjust to the speed. There's a ton of people who normally play online and then have come into the virtual face to face and really enjoyed it. We just had a player do that and take third place at whipping a few weeks ago. And it was like, I think it was our first virtual tournament. So it's certainly possible. And just to, to put in a plug here, there's three events coming up. Um, not to step on Maletsky's toes here, but there's a, a spring e-carnage event coming up next weekend that we're looking for more, uh, more people to play in. And then there's VDL two weeks later, and there's DixieCon two weeks later. So there's lots of upcoming virtual face-to-face opportunities. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's incredibly attractive. I think there's, there's a couple of barriers. One is, is obviously the time difference is not the easiest, but the other one is my wife would kill me. Ah, it can be a problem. <laughs> Even if you're unable to play, uh, if you just want to come and kibitz and socialize and see what's going on, uh, that's welcome as well. Well, I think maybe I should maybe maybe I should come and, and uh, bite the bullet and join up. I think, but because uh, I've been watching with great enthusiasm, I I, uh, I must admit I I watched almost all of the um, DBNI um, with vast enthusiasm and learned just a hell of a lot about how to play the game. Really interesting watching those guys playing and seeing the difference actually in this how early. Austria tends to break towards Munich and Italy tends to go from Marseille when you're you're seeing high level face to face play. Something you very rarely see in um online sort of extended deadline stuff. Really interesting. Anyone have anything that particularly surprised them out of that kind of thing or, or really kind of It looks like Tim wrote another question. Oh, okay. For example, as Germany I will now be far more likely to Try and bounce Sweden in 01 because it might help Austria and Turkey to do well. It seemingly helps Germany to do well. Ah, well. So I read, um, actually, Brother Bord, you wrote a whole thing on, on whether you should bounce Russia in Sweden or not, which I found really, really interesting. And actually, that persuaded me not to bounce uh, Russia in Sweden most of the time. It's quite interesting. And has enabled me to talk myself into Sweden a couple of times. So thank you very much. I did play one game when I managed to no-build England, France, and Russia as Germany by bouncing. And that obviously involved bouncing Sweden. I was quite quite pleased with that one. But uh, generally speaking, I don't bounce it. I'd be interested by anybody else does. I think uh, one thing you need to consider with... Uh... There, that there, as far as something like bouncing Sweden, is that there's not only no truisms that are going to span the gamut of situations and uh, uh, neighbors, uh, but that 
it's not a one-off like something that might be true in a, in a single in a single situation is not necessarily something you want to develop as part of your metagame reputation for so in this case if you're known as a player who's going to bounce sweden eventually you're going to see a lot more of gulf of bothnia to baltic in the fall and you're going to see a lot more of warsaw to silesia in the spring if players just know like well he's never going to let me into sweden so you know you you your metagame reputations that spans uh, across uh, experiences is going to be very important uh, to your success as well and I'll, I'll add to that and say that uh, sometimes it can be counterproductive in terms of the psychodynamics, which is that if France and England know that Russia is going to get shut out of the north, that um, can kind of counterintuitively incentivize an England-France alliance because they know that Germany is not going to be able to pull in Russia uh, and, st and stop them really early on. Yeah, 100%. I've only ever suffered by uh, not bounce or by bouncing uh, Russia and Sweden, unfortunately. And I've I've only ever soloed as Germany with actually letting them in Sweden. Yeah, for sure. I I'm always thinking I actually don't because it's very hard to tell really most of the time when whether you've got the uh, the alliance in the north or not as Germany because you can you've just got completely neutral moves a lot of the time from. Uh, from England and from France that could mean absolutely anything. You want to persuade Germany, if it's all possible, to move too north so that that really... So you want to persuade Russia to move too north because then that really puts the wind up England. My most common tactic, to be honest, is to say to Russia, I'm going to bounce you unless you move Moscow to St. Petersburg and ally with me against England. Because if, they, if it turns out you don't want them there, you can, you can still chase them away quite easily. You've still got the numbers. I think you're better off you know, trying to negotiate with the carrot than the stick, right? You you don't want to uh, just open with a threat of uh, <laughs> do, do, do or else, you know. I'm kind of, I'm oversimplifying there. I'm much yeah. more diplomatic when I actually do, say it in person. Yeah, I mean, all of this is nonsense anyway, really, isn't it? Like, situationally, you go into a game with, with one idea in your mind, I'm going to behave like this in order to achieve these goals. And then you talk to the other players, and, and within minutes you you've identified that there are there's one guy that you just you're never going to trust them, and you you want them off the board as soon as possible, or that there's one other person that you think you really can work with. Some people are weak, some people are strong, and you have to completely readjust based on who you think you can persuade to do what. Let, I will just say that I've heard Eddie Bersan say many many times that when he sits down in a game. Every, every single turn, he'll open the turn writing a set of orders, and then he'll spend his diplomacy phase trying to uh, talk people into making those orders good good ones. <laughs> I've recently taken to saying that uh, when educating other players on how to be better at diplomacy, I say, I'm trying to teach you how to think about this game and not really what to think in particular because diplomacy matches are so contextual and circumstantial and contingent that it's not really that, hey, is Germany, should Germany bounce Russia in Sweden or not? It's more like, here is a list of things that might be on my mind when I'm trying to make that decision. <laughs> yeah, and like, I mean, the whole point of this presentation really was to say that you have to care about what's going on in every other corner of the board if you want to win 
you said something about this just recently, I think about how important it is to to know what everybody else is doing everywhere else in the game. And so you, you're going to make your decisions based on a huge amount of information about what you think everybody else is up to. Because if you know that Turkey is going for Russia, then you absolutely do not bounce Russia and Sweden under any circumstances, pretty much. You, if Turkey is opening to Armenia, it's going to be very unusual that you're going to want to bounce Russia, unless you think it's a faint or, or whatever. But normally, if I thought Russia was going to struggle to get Romania and keep it, I would definitely want to give them Sweden. Apologies if this was already asked. I um, was curious for the data in the graph. Was that from face-to-face -face tournaments or just like, well, where was that collected from? Sorry. Right. So it's mostly played by email games. It's about 10 years old, that data. Right. Which is one, uh, one thing I'm slightly hesitant about because we don't know the play by email actually produces the same results as online play on, on uh, web diplomacy and play dip and, and backstabber. I suspect that you see more solos on Backstabber in particular than you do on play-by-email. My perception of the play-by-email audience is that they were much more engaged and they put their moves in and they didn't give up when they started losing. And there was there, people were much more likely to be playing by email with other people that they already knew. And therefore... If you play with players that you already know, I think the chances of a solo are significantly reduced. Like I said, Josh McCohen did some really good web dip data, which showed that wasn't as comprehensive, but showed that like 60 to 70% of games on web dip ended in a solo, which was quite interesting. We really need to get a much more comprehensive set of modern data, really. Yeah, it's definitely fun because I, I, f I found like the only times that I've ever really had a shot at soloing or whatnot or have actually soloed is when uh, people are sort of, when you're like talking in person or whatnot and kind of there's just bad blood in certain areas of the board and things just kind of go chaotic. <laughs> yeah, I think I've actually been handed a lot of solos by aggrieved players. Just you get to 16, 17 and then some like, I remember one guy, the first time, I, my first solo was Italy. I got to 17 and I, I thought, I'm stuck here. There's no way I'm getting over this line. Like, I'm not going any further. And then Germany just popped out of the woodwork and he said, I think France is a horse and I'm going to stab him and give you the win. He's annoyed me so much. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> I'll take a solo however I can get it. I don't care. But uh, so I, I think, and so uh, Doug Moore said something just recently about be the guy that everybody dislikes least. And I thought that was just such useful advice. Like, yeah, that's a great way of phrasing it. <laughs> if, if, if giving you a solo winds up the players on the other side of the board less than uh, stopping you, then they'll put it together. Right? Because putting together a stalemate line and blocking somebody is just a lot of work. It's a real pain. You can see, particularly on like people playing pickup games, they just get bored and wander off. They just can't be bothered doing it anymore. My record's not good enough to be to be bothered putting these orders in every week. It is interesting to look at where the data is aligned between different countries. Like I think it looks like Italy and Russia are the only two that have the same two that they want to see lose. Well, I guess with Russia, they had the little bar with, with Germany. But you'd think it would show that, you think with this data, it would indicate that there should be more IRs out of the gate because they both want to see Austria and Turkey lose. 
Well, I'm personally, when I play Russia or when I play Italy, my first message is to the other one. <laughs> Do you want to form a winter green? I just think it's a wonderful alliance. It's a juggernaut, but with no conflict over the Black Sea, and you can build on the front. <laughs> the one caveat I'll say about the winter green is that it is a wonderful alliance, uh, but it's a wonderful alliance because Austria almost never trusts Turkey enough to work with them. Because if it's if 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 Austria and Turkey are fully allied and working in concert, they will defeat a Wintergreen a hundred percent of the time. Their units are closer together; they can act in more cohesion. Is it the reason? It's it's mostly because Italy can't do anything uh, if they if Austria and Turkey are working together, and Austria and Turkey can just eliminate the Russian southern frontier while Italy has no impact. You kind of need to. I mean. You kind of need to disguise it, don't you, and go in either with an AIR or a, um, what do we call it, a Bohemian crusher, take it, persuade either Turkey or Austria that they're in a three-way alliance with you, and then they discover that actually you were in a two-way alliance with each yeah, other. That's <laughs> right. That's 100% right. Right, and, and the other problem with the wintergreen is is – your your ostensible real ally doesn't know for sure they're your real ally. Like in my mind, I might be really allied with Russia, but does Russia know that? They, <laughs> they don't. So Russia, even though they might be my my true target for who I want to ally with, uh, might be somewhat mistrustful too and end up not working with me. I'll add that I think uh, a reason we don't see Italy-Russia as common as these statistics might say is that, that the powers are incentivized to play together is that a lot of the dynamics of games that are played out do interfere with that alliance. I'll try to explain what I mean. If you're playing in a tournament where there's some time limit uh, on how many turns the match can last, this can kind of mess with the viability of the Italy-Russia alliance because that the true power of that alliance takes a lot of turns to really play out. So this incentivizes Russia to say, eh, I'm just going to go with the juggernaut after Austria is taken out because it'll take it'll just take me too many turns to clear out Turkey. Whereas if I just sell Italy to Turkey and see how that plays out, I have a chance to expand elsewhere. Or in games where the players are not very good, they don't or they're not putting a lot of time in the match. They don't spend a lot of time talking to powers that are not their immediate neighbors, and they just naturally develop a tendency to try to play out alliances with their neighbors. So if you have low-level games where players just try to play out alliances with their neighbors because that's who they talk to, and in tournament games, there may be time limits that disincentivize alliances that their full power, their full might is uh, apparent after a long game. I think those are things that explain why we don't see this alliance as much as you would think. But if we are playing real diplomacy with players who really know what they're doing and there's no time limit, there's no scoring system affecting how people are thinking about the game, then the incentive to play the Wintergreen Alliance is very big. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I'm actually playing it right now in a, in a, in a league that I have with, with a, a bunch of really quite handy players. And um, we've essentially played the Wintergreen since the very first term. And um, there's been all sorts of twists and turns and changes in the lines in between. And the two of us have stuck together right from the start. And it's just worked brilliantly, really. But yeah, I think like a lot of it is exactly what you say. Like Italy, in low-level games where you're playing with people who don't know what they're doing, everybody just ignores Italy. 
they just leave Italy sitting there in the in the middle of the Mediterranean. And as Italy, you really can't do very much by yourself. You really need somebody else to work with you. I think the the Craig and the the IT alliance is more viable than people tend to say. Like I'm not saying it's ideal, but I've played that before and it's it's worked a treat. We ended up two weighing the board before because everybody gave up before we could get anywhere else. We, we, we were kind of the only two left standing, so we ended up with a two-way draw. But you've got to persuade somebody to work with you if you're Italy. You've got to persuade one player to actually come in and say, yeah, I'm working with you, or you just kind of sit there until you lose. What does anybody think of the thing that we saw in tournaments quite a lot, the, what do we call it, Turbo Lepanto, when Venice moves to Trieste as a kind of as an agreed move with um, Austria? It's really good if it's in the fall. Like, if it's in the spring, it's it's likely go, uh, just the setup to stab Austria. But if it's in the fall by as an agreed-upon move and um, Italy bypasses Tunis, uh, uh, you know, moves to Aegean, um, then it works. It works wonders if you're trying to kill off Turkey quickly. But conversely, uh, there was a game recently where a uh, virtual game where Chris Brand uh, tried to do that as Italy, and if you're uh, by virtue of doing it in the fall, um, he ended up not building, and Austria was in the Ionian, etc. So you know, there's costs and benefits to when you do the move, like, and who's going to have more positional security between Austria and Italy, and it requires a lot of trust, so. Again, it's a metagame thing, isn't it? Are you going to play with this guy again? A hundred percent. If you play multiple iterations in tournaments and uh, house games and online games and uh, league play and what have you with people, the meta your metagame reputation uh, is, is going to matter a lot. Like I can, uh, one of one of the uh, virtual events I was playing in a game because they needed me to fill in a spot. So, was, I was Germany and Kartik was uh, Austrian. He is an insightful thinker, good player. And there was one point when I was uh, sitting in Galicia and I was swearing to him up and down that it would be asinine of me to just run in on Vienna or Budapest and try to one-dot him because, like, his units were important to me and giving him a whole valid line of reasoning. He had never played with me before and was hearing things from other players, so he got paranoid and ran back to cover and ended up screwing up his whole position. Um, and I was, as I was being honest and, you know, wasn't going for any of his things. But, and had he played with me a hundred times, he would have known that, you know, but as a consequence of n not having the the uh, information from uh, multiple interactions, you know, the metagame, re your metagame reputation very much impacts your play over time. I had a situation in the uh, game I'm playing right now where I was Russia and I kind of persuaded people into a sea line and then it was a way to, to basically stop Germany just attacking me straight away, which was clearly what he wanted to do. And I ended up with Norway and Sweden and Germany and, and France sitting on seven centres each in the north. And Italy was busy attacking um, Turkey. And they just couldn't work out what to do. They just sat there, the two of them staring at each other. And um, Germany was saying to me, are you going to attack me? Are you going to attack me? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not, because reputationally 
I've, I've made a significant number of promises to you here, and I'm, I'm quite happy, by the way, just picking up senses in the South. I would like the two of you to sit there for the rest of the game. And he just didn't believe me and attacked me. France stabbed him. Although, actually, that's a fascinating situation as well. If you were sitting there with as Russia on with three dots in the North and France and Germany on seven each, what do you do in that situation? I mean, you need to you need to know the uh, position and and the diplomatic relationships to be able to answer the question. Fair enough. Fair enough. I had no idea. I just left them to it, and in in the end, uh, in the end, Germany lost its nerve and France stabbed him. I couldn't see any benefit in that situation to working with either of them against the other one, because they would just end up taking over the whole north and uh, and then slaughtering me next. I don't know if this is the, the advice you're angling for, but maybe it would help, is that since France is a corner power, I often mentally add like plus two to France's score in this situation, that if I saw France and Germany, they're both at seven, I would think, okay, France has the upper hand here because Germany's a central power and France is a corner power. That was kind of how I calculated it. But also I thought that France was very friendly and not likely to do anything silly, whereas Germany was getting extremely nervous and, and um, I didn't really want to give him any more power. So it kind of all balanced out. In the end, anyway, I did it too long and, and they sorted it out among themselves. So that's fine. And it worked quite well because I'm still allied with Italy and France is left on his own in the corner. So, well... Thank you so much for having me, guys. That was incredibly nice to, to sit here and do that. Really nice to talk with some people who I've been reading and reading about for uh, for the last year or so. So uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, and, thank uh, you, Dave. Thank you for uh, researching this and presenting your data and giving us your time. And my absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Masterclass. To participate in future Masterclass sessions, please join the Virtual World Diplomacy Community's Discord server by following the link in the episode description. And remember to subscribe to the Diplomacy Dojo podcast for Brother Boards Dojo, as well as future Masterclass recordings. Thanks to Frederick Larden for the music Robot is Chilling, used here in our intro and outro.